CNF, the creative nonfiction podcast, greatest podcast in the world, sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. Goucher MFA is a two-year low residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. Program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu slash nonfiction to start your journey now, immediately. Take your writing to the next level. Go from hopeful to published and goucher's MFA in nonfiction. Mm, Coming in, coming in hot. Number two, batting, batting second in the lineup. Quality, quality sponsor. Baypath University, your story. Baypath is the first and only MFA to offer a new residency. Fully, you'll find small online classes and a dynamic and supportive community. You'll master the techniques of good writing from acclaimed authors and editors. Learn about publishing and teaching through professional internships. And complete a master's thesis that will form the foundation for your memoir or collection of personal essays. Special elective courses include contemporary women's stories, travel and food writing, week-long summer residency in Ireland. Ireland? Ireland. With guest writers including Andre DeBuse III, Anne Hood, Mia Gallagher, and others. Start dates in late August, January. And you're going to find out more at baypath.edu slash MFA. Oh, oh boy. What are you going to do, CNFers? What are you going to do? Plug in your axe, man, and let's jam. Hey, I'm Brendan O'Mara, and this is my podcast, CNF. Crave Nonfiction Podcast, greatest podcast in the world, where I talk to badass tellers of true tales, whether they be writers, filmmakers, or audio producers, and I try to chart their journey while unpacking how they go about the work. Fred Waitskin is here. He's most famous for writing the memoir Searching for Bobby Fischer, which was made into a movie. But we don't talk about that one lick. That'll be for another pod. We talked about his writing career and his new novel based on a true story titled Deep Water Blues, published by Open Road. Honestly, man, the pod goblins threw this one together. Again, I don't know how it happened. I kind of like black out for most of the week. Energy levels are all-time lows. The yard and garden haven't been tended to in ages. My wife is the breadwinner by a pole, as we might say in horse racing, and she's burned out from working terribly long days. I'm burning out from working long days. By the end, after our bike commutes home, we're cooked. We're in bed by like 8.30, the latest. We can barely keep our eyes open to read. It's... A mess. To quote my favorite band, it comes to be that the soothing light at the end of the tunnel is just a freight train coming our way. That's right. You subscribe to the show? Do it wherever. I don't need to tell you where, do I? Good. Head over to brendanomero.com, hey, for show notes and to subscribe to the podcast newsletter. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it, so they say. Keep the conversation going on Twitter. At Brendan O'Mara and at CNF Pod. If the show matters to you, and I know it does for some of you, maybe even a lot of you, tag the show and link up to your link up to it in your various platforms. If I'm the fire, you're the Tinder baby. Swipe right. All right, that's enough nonsense. I think you're gonna love this one. Fred's got such a passion for writing, and he's written many great books. And I don't want to jinx it, but I think you'll want to come back. And we'll dig into his memoirs and other stuff. He's one of those guys who really loves the task and the art of writing. The work. Loves the work. You're going to love it. I know it. Here's me and Fred Waitzkin. Episode 163? Yeah. Let's do it. this story in Deepwater Blue? Um, that's a story in itself. Um, I, I started, you know, I, I, I'm a fisherman. I've been a, a lifelong fisherman. You know, I have an old boat, a 40-foot Hatteras, 
which is um, 40 years old. It's kind of like a member of my family. And I've been um, fishing in the islands, the Bahamian islands, for my whole life. It's before I had my boat. My dad had a boat. And I've always been a fisherman, fisherman and a writer. About 25 years ago, we were exploring in the southern Bahamas, really off the beaten track, uh, almost as far south as you can go before hitting the Turks and Caicos. And we discovered this island that it's just absolutely gorgeous. It was very unlike Bahamian islands, which are typically flat and arid. And this one had beautiful vegeta vegetation, and it was mountainous, and there weren't too many people. Uh, it had wild animals, wild, wild um, um, pigs and, and cows, uh, more wild animals than people. And it also had a lovely, tiny little marina on the south end, which hardly anyone knew about. Um, it was mostly frequented by sportsmen by, that came from Florida, a lot of um, celebrity sportsmen like Mark Messier, the hockey player, uh, Jackie Onassis used to go there. And it was pretty much unknown. It was just this tiny little place and 15 boats would show up and it was, the fishing was insanely great. Um, it was pristine. And I started fishing there. And then a number of years ago, a terrible tragedy happened uh, around the island. Uh, a really gruesome, awful event that you've probably already read about in the book, but I don't think I'm going to spell it out, but just a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of people die. And after that, um, the island was cursed, uh, is the best way I can put it. I mean, just terrible things happened on the island, one thing after the next. And this beautiful, phys be physically beautiful place became kind of gnarled physically. Um, the, the, the character of the people there changed. Very violent things started to happen, and the um, and the uh, evolution of the place, coupled with my own personal involvement, because I loved it so much there, made it something that I thought I would write about. But it took me a while to figure out how to write about it. Anyway, that's how it began. Mm. So what was, uh, or how were you able to crack the code to, to write about it in the way that was satisfactory for you? Well... It was, you know, I've written a number of books, and uh, my last book was a, a lengthy novel called The Dream Merchant. And, you know, I sat down to write this book very much in the same spirit in which I've written many other books. And every time I tried, it just, it just wasn't coming out right. It just, it just lacked the power and the zest of the story itself. I was falling short. And I, you know, I put it aside and... Um, and I spent two years working on a screenplay, uh, which I'd never I'd never written a screenplay before. But I, you know, I had friends that were movie producers, and I came across a story that was very very interesting to me. And I I threw myself into this sort of this new medium, and I learned how to do it. I worked with a with you know with a screenplay writing coach for a month or two, and and I learned the I learned the basics of screenwriting. And after I finished the screenplay and put it out into the world. I decided to take another crack at the novel, and I realized that um, immediately how to write the novel after I'd written the screenplay. I realized that it was a it was an adventure story. It was a fast and violent story. I had to write it in that spirit. No lengthy no lengthy paragraphs. No complicated ideas. It had to be short sentences. No flashbacks. It had to just move like a great movie. And with that understanding, you know, it, it, it virtually wrote itself. I wrote it in ten months. Mm. I, I love that you you ha you stepped away from it in such a way that you and then tried a different discipline, and that's what kind of that that's what freed you. And I I think it's so important for artists and writers, whatever you whatever your discipline is, to kind of get outside of your like chosen trade and draw inspiration from a different kind of craft. And oftentimes it it does it it recolors and re inspires you to. And gives you that momentum to 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 finish the thing that you were kind of stuck on, right? Yeah, I think it's true. And I mean, you know, in my writing career, um, I every time I finish a book, I kind of have a problem. Um, it's hard for me to start the next book. And 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 I find that if I try to write a, a new book, like within a month or two of having finished the old book, I end up rewriting the book that I'd just written. And so I've learned that I have to sort of give myself space, and and that's important because you want each book to have a new life. You want it to be alive, almost like a person. So um, I think that's 
that's how I relate to that idea. Mm. And so with this one, of course, you you d- did the adjacent thing and wrote, wrote worked on a screenplay for a while. Um, what other artistic media do you like to sometimes uh, consume as inspiration that helps inform your writing and make you a better writer? Well, you know, I'm a great lover of music. You know, I'm a jazz lover. I'm a um, hand drummer. So I've always been inspired by, by music. My mom was a painter. Um, and I, in fact, if you were... If, if we were looking at visual Skype right now, you'd be in my office hmm. in Manhattan, and my, my office is surrounded by the sculptures of my mother. My mother was a great artist and sculpt, sculptress, and her work is in museums all over the world. I love art. You know, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a lover of the arts. Um, the odd thing, I, I would suppose, about my relationship to writing that might seem a little off the beaten track is that... Um, starting from a very, very young age, writing and fishing have always been linked for me. And I think the reason why that is is because when I was 13 years old, my mother uh, put a copy of Life magazine in front of me, um, which had the original version of Ernest Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. And I read that when I was 13 years old, and I fell in love simultaneously with his prose style, the, the, rhythm, the rhythm of the sentences, and with this idea of going into the ocean and, and finding great fish. And so fishing in the ocean, I'm a, I'm a boat captain. I've been a, a captain for most of my adult life. So that juxtaposition has always worked for me as a writer, which isn't to say that I've written about boating and fishing very much, because I haven't. But, but somehow it's baked into my lifestyle. When I work on a book to get away from my office, from, from, the, from, the, from the routine of writing every day, I get out on my boat, I go to sea, I fish, I come back, I go to work. So that kind of juxtaposition fuels me. Mm. And yeah, and your your mother was a very committed artist too. Like she was very um she treated it like work uh, in the research I've done. Like she was very uh very strict about her her discipline around her work and her painting and sculpting. Um what uh, and what did you learn from her uh, what it takes to be a, a disciplined, regimented artist to get creative work done? Well, she was very much as you describe her, um, and exponentially so. And my mother believed that, um, that art was everything. Um, she believed that, and we used to argue about it, because you know, I have other, other interests. I, like I'm crazy involved with sports. Hmm. Um, you know, I, was, I was a very hands-on father. You know, I was involved with my kids. And and my mother would always counsel me, you know, forget watching Jet games on Sundays. Don't watch NFL games. Work. If you want to ever get anywhere as an artist, you have to work all the time. She was brutal that way. And, she, and, that's, what she, and that's how she was. She worked from, from dawn to dusk. She, for the last 20 years of her life, she worked with um, polyester resin making her sculptures, which is very toxic stuff. And she used to pour this resin in molds. And, and make incredible pieces of faces looking out of books. Books were her motif. She created books without words. And, and she used to pour this resin into molds, and then she'd put it at the, at the foot of her bed so that when she woke up in the morning, she could see these faces with a fresh eye. But the problem was that they were toxic all through the night in her bedroom. Stuff probably killed her. But she was really... Um, she was rigorous about the importance of the work, and, and I, you know, and it, it influenced me greatly, without a, without a question. And in, in a sense, too, um, your father, though, in a different trade, the Beethoven of fluorescence, as I think I read, um, he uh, he had a different kind of of rigor as may, perhaps the the greatest uh, salesman of of fluorescent lighting for industrial well, for commercial buildings in in all of New York. So what did you learn from, from him and, and even just the interwoven nature of your parents' um, sort of vocations that led to you being a, a, very, you know, a very successful writer? My parents were so mismatched. Uh, they were both brilliant at what they did. I love that you came up with the line, Beethoven of Fluorescence, which came out of my uh, memoir, um, The Last Marlin, because uh, that's how I thought of him. I mean, you know, when you say the Beethoven of Fluorescence, it sort of sounds hilarious, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what I believed when I was a kid. I mean, he was, he was during his, his 
his period of time in New York. For, tw for 12 years in New York, he sold more fluorescent lighting than every other lighting salesman in the city combined. He was rather remarkable. But in my mind, he was even bigger than that. I mean, in my mind, when you looked at the New York City skyline and you saw those lights, I thought it was my dad that lit the light, the, the lit the skyline. And, um, and you know, the, the question you ask is so fundamental to who I am. Um, I don't know if your readers could relate to this or not, but you know, when I was when I was going to college, one of my favorite writers was Thomas Mann, and and he he would um he he would have these quote unquote artist figures in his short stories and his novels, and very often the artist figure was the um was the product of a of a gypsy artistic mother and a businessman father, and I I and you know Thomas Mann appealed to me in part because that's the way I grew up, and kind of like that literary tension, that push and pull between my parents um, was kind of like what made me. And as a writer, um, the whole idea of push and pull is very, very basic to me. You know, um, you know, good is good is is connected with evil in an, in a in a an intrinsic way. Like to to make that more tangible. If I were to write about a hero, you know, a, a character that's a good character, um, I would be very interested in exploring his his bad side, his shadow side, because I think all of us have a shadow side. You, you won't find a hero in my book that's just unequivocally good. I don't believe in that, and I don't think it's terribly interesting either. So can you kind of see how that would relate to my parents? I mean, my yeah. father broke all the moral rules. You know, I mean, he'd do anything to make the sale. And my mother was an idealist an artistic idealist. So I sort of came from that, and my writing was greatly influenced by it. Yeah, I, I love that your your mother, of all books that she chose to give you when you were a teenager, uh, an imp you know, an, an impression, impressionable teenager, she gives you Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea, and it, to me, it, it Deepwater Blues really kind of harkens to that, though it's not like a book exclusively on on the water and about fishing necessarily, the way Old Man in the Sea is, but they, they seem to echo each other, if, if that makes any sense. And was that kind of your intent when you when you took on Deepwater Blues, that this was going to echo back to that very influential book for you? You know, I don't, I don't think I was thinking about it in the forefront of my mind. But, I mean, on the other hand, it might have been somewhere in there. Because, I mean, um, that's where it began for me with that book. And, and I loved it so much. I thought it was so... Um, I don't know. I was so young. I mean, I've loved many writers since Hemingway. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I could give you a list of writers. We could go on and on talking about the writers, but I, but I guess when I think about the scene writing, I think about Ernest Hemingway and Joseph Conrad, both of those guys. So I, I don't think I was specifically thinking about it, but I, I can certainly see how that book influenced, in, influenced this book and the prose style also. Because yeah. as I suggested before, again, it wasn't something I was consciously thinking about. But if you were to look at the pro style with, it, with which I wrote this book, which was significantly influenced by screenwriting, by movies, um, it's different than my other other books. Shorter paragraphs, shorter sentences, um, no flashbacks. I tried to keep it uncomplicated. and wanted it to be an adventure story told as well as I could tell it. And as you were as you were sort of developing as a young writer, eventually you come to, um, you know, you, s struggling writing short stories. Eventually you come to doing you know, long-form journalism, feature writing. Um, and there's a kind of a, a gap in, the, in, in my research. I, did, I couldn't find out quite how you got to journalism. So how did you get to the kind of journalism that you were doing and writing stories for New York Times Magazine and Esquire and everything? So how did you come to that? Well, let me, I, I'll tell you. But let, let, let me back up just a little bit because it's kind of funny. At least it's funny to me. You know, when I, when I, after graduate school um, I, and, and then I taught for a couple of years in college, I decided that I'd devote some time to writing fiction. And, um, and my mother, I, you know, I'd been living in Saint, on St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands. And I moved back to New York and my mother loaned me um, a cold water painting studio where she stored her canvases. And I went up there every day attempting to... Um, to write the great, the great, the great novel, and I would go to this office every day and, and sit down and try to imagine what um, fantastic plot 
my novel would have. I had it in mind. Maybe it would be a great, a great plot like Tolstoy might write, like old, you know, like, um, you know, Anna Karenina, you know, or, or War and Peace. And I went up there every day, and I couldn't think of one goddamn plot. And then I spent the better part of two years trying to think of a plot, and I couldn't find one anywhere. And I started. It was very troubling. How the hell am I going to be a, you know, an important novelist if I can't think of a plot? And, you know, I had friends, everybody has friends, and, and, um, and a friend of mine was writing for the New York Times Magazine, and, uh, and she introduced me to an editor, and they gave me an assignment, and I wrote it, and uh, they liked my work, and then I started writing regularly for them. And, and what I discovered when I was writing for the New York Times Magazine um, was that there were stories everywhere. I didn't think there were any stories. I mean, I thought I had to make up all these stories, like fairy tales, when I was trying to write the novels. But I realized earlier on, but I realized there were stories everywhere. You could find them in the subway. You could find them walking in the street. You know, you could be interviewing an NBA ball player and having a couple beers, and then he'd tell you a secret, and you'd realize, oh my God, that's a fantastic story he's telling me. And so I really learned about stories, doing feature journalism for the better part of 10 years. And that really was a, was a great training ground for me as a novelist. But to answer your specific question, I was introduced to an editor by, by a friend, which is often the case. I mean, how do you get started somewhere? Someone has to give you a chance. What was that first story, if you remember? Um, the first story, well, that's, this is a hilarious, this is, also, this is also kind of a funny story. The first story was about being a sports fan. I was a crazy sports fan. I was, I was a fan of the New York Knickerbockers and the New York Jets and the New York Mets, all of whom, all of which mostly lose, right? Yeah. But I was a fanatic sports fan. And, and I, I sold, I sold the, my editor at the magazine the idea that it would be great to write about being a sports fanatic. And so they liked the idea. And, uh, and I thought that I would um, base the article on um, my favorite athlete in the world, who was, who was Walt Frazier. Are you a basketball fan? Yeah, and I'm familiar with, uh, with Walt, too. Yeah. Okay. okay, so he was my favorite. You know, I mean, he was just bigger than life for me. I just, you know, I lived and died for Walt Frazier. And so through the times, I, I'd, you know, arranged a phone interview with Frazier. And I was in my apartment one morning, and he called up. And he said, hello, this is Clyde. Hmm. And I said, Clyde? This is Clyde? And he said, yeah, hmm. this is Clyde. Is this Fred? And I was just so stunned that the same guy that brought the ball up the court so brilliantly, you know, and weaved through Pete Maravich and all these other guys to make the, make the baskets, they called me up on the phone that I couldn't say a goddamn thing to him. I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I just couldn't say a word. And I bumbled around for about 45 seconds and he hung up the phone. And, and the article was a disaster. And honestly, I mean, honestly, um, in, in 12 years of feature journalism, I think it's the only article I ever wrote that didn't get published. <laughs> because I was too tongue-tied to talk to Walt Frazier. Now, so actually my first article, my first major article, I bounced from the Times to Esquire. And I wrote, I wrote a big article for Esquire, and then I went back to the Times Magazine and I wrote for them a lot. That's hilarious with the Clyde, uh, with uh, Clyde Frazier. There, I, I know what you mean. Like sometimes you you write a story about someone, or you get access to someone you revere, and you're hearing their voice. You know, you, you're so used to hearing them on TV, so you have that remove, and then all of a sudden they they are literally in your ear, and it's it's very <laughs> it's intimidating, and you can totally. You can totally clam up. I can to I totally get it. I, I totally clammed up. I was like an idiot. <laughs> I I remember a few years ago I interviewed uh, Tom Durkin, who's the you know the iconic great race caller for decades for New York Racing Association and Triple Crown and everything. And just to hear that voice coming through my phone, I was like, this is so freaking cool that I'm hearing Tom Durkin coming through my phone. Yeah, well, that's what it was like. Yeah. And so I, I loved there's this one part um, you you said that you doing the doing journalism you learned the importance of story in story 
And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that, because I really liked the ethos of what you're getting at there. Well, you know, I mean, when I started writing the short stories, um, during that period of time that I was in my, my mom's cold water flat, uh, first of all, I couldn't think of any great stories. And secondly, I wasn't sure what a great story was. And I mean, the, the only kind of things that were occurring to me as stories during that tortured time, w working in that freezing cold place, were my dreams. You know, I would have, sometimes I would have these dreams and some of them were morbid. They were interesting to me. And I would write them up as little short stories. And I would send them out to literary magazines like the Transatlantic Review and the Paris Review. And very occasionally one of them were, one of them was published, but for the most part, they were rejected. And I couldn't figure out why, because I figured those were the stories that I had. But I, you know, but later on, starting from when I was writing for the magazines, and then afterwards, when I started writing my books, I realized how tremendously important stories are. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, occasionally I work with young writers, uh, talented young writers, to help them along a little bit. And one of the things that I tell them is that um, having a great story is 80% of the game. Of course, you have to learn how to be a writer. There's a lot of things to learn about being a writer. But if you have a great story, I mean a really great story, you can, you can be less than a great writer and it can still be a very good story. So finding a great story is very important. And what is, it, and what is a great story? Well, there are different elements and a great story you know, a great story for you, Brendan, might not be a great story for me. There might be a certain commonality. There probably would be. I mean, it would be a tale that would be intriguing, you know, that it would have a, you know, the ending might be a surprise. There would be something about it that would be gripping. There would have to be some characters that were very interesting and compelling. But really, and I think this is the key to it, a great story for me is a story that engages me emotionally a story that I can fall in love with. Because it's like a love affair, writing a novel. I mean, you're, you're with this book for a year, for, for, I don't know, the last one I wrote quickly, but you know, the one before took me 10 years to write. So you, you're with this story for years, you've gotta love it, you've gotta be able to love it. You need to be able to dig deeply into it. If you don't love it, even though it might be a great story for you, if it's not a great story for me, it, you know, it's, it's just not gonna work. So, I mean, have I sort of answered your question? Yeah, absolutely, because I think the pitfall that some people get into, and this could be for anyone who, say, might be a fan of, say, David Foster Wallace or something, who has just pyrotechnics on the page. So sometimes people, I think, they want to maybe sound like that and fall into that trap. But really, ultimately, what you need to do is find just a good story write clean sentences and get out of the way. So I kind of like the, the, the sense that, you know, it, it starts with story and then you can build out from there. And like, that's what people want. Even though there are some people like a Juno Diaz or a David Foster Wallace who can really just light up the page for you, irregardless of, uh, regardless of what they're writing. Well, listen, you know, a great story can help you light up the page. In other words, a great story inspires you. And, and, and that's the, that's the other element in writing, which, you know, which I think about a lot, which I try to teach when I talk to young writers. You know, um, one of the questions I'm often asked is, um, do you write a detailed outline of your books? You know, do you, do you outline the book from the beginning to the end? Do you, you know, do you outline your chapters carefully? Do you, do you, do you have intensely detailed notes before you write a chapter? And I say no. And I say, that I know generally the story that I want to tell. You know, I might... When I start writing a chapter, I might have a three by five card with you know four or five points that I'm likely to hit. But I think the more important thing is to give myself room to discover the story that I want to write. Because I think that the story that exists beneath the story, the story that comes from a pre-analytic place in a writer is where the really exciting stuff happens. Hemingway, and I, I guess I read this in the Paris Review when I was a kid, um, said something like, every time he sits down to write, he tries to write better than he could write. And I didn't understand what, what that meant for many, many years. I think maybe I didn't understand it until five or six or seven years ago. And I think what he meant was just what I'm referring to, that like if you are engaged in your story so deeply that you're not thinking and worrying about, you know, what happens next and then what happens after next, 
if you're able to just sit down and let yourself enter into the story in a kind of pre-analytic way and just write it, then you can discover things in yourself and in your story that you never dreamed of. But if you try to wedge yourself into a, a tight outline of everything that you're going to say, the greatness that you might have in you, you might never have a chance to actually access. Yeah, it's kind of like that echoes something you you said in an interview uh, where you said there's a lot of alchemy in writing. You make a soup, put a lot of stuff in, but if it's really good soup, what comes out is sometimes surprisingly different than what you put in, and this is the coolest thing in writing. So that's kind of what you're getting at. It kind of like you might have an idea, but it's just working with the muse, and then something else comes to the surface that you had no idea was there. Absolutely. I mean, again, I, maybe it's it's frustrating to our listeners that I'm going to make these illusions without, you know, you know, putting meat on the bone. But like in the book that we're referring to, Deepwater Blues, the ending of that book, I didn't know what that ending was going to be until I was 30 pages out. And then all of a sudden it came to me, oh, my God. Now, I, I love that. And that's happened to me before, because if you if you know, if you know what the ending is going to be before you even write it, then there's a chance that you're kind of crimping yourself. You're crimping your work to get to that ending rather than letting the work bring you to an ending, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think, too, it's not having the ending in mind at the beginning. It, like That can be stifling and, and crimping, kind of like you said. But the minute you know where the ending is, to me, and this is a nautical metaphor that probably will appeal to you, is that it, it, it in essence, becomes a lighthouse. And then you know you're writing towards something. And there's a kind of a sprint and a great momentum that comes in once you know what the ending is going to be. Uh, is that an exciting pulse of energy for you when you figure out what that ending is and then you are just gunning for that lighthouse? I think you expressed it beautifully. I, I couldn't say I certainly couldn't say it any better. That's exactly how I feel. But I, again, I think the key to it, and I love the way you say sprinting through that lighthouse, but the key to it is, you know, again, not, not having it in front of you before you start writing the book, because then you might be straining to get there rather than allowing the book to get you there. And in this, uh, in Deepwater Blues too, it's, 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 based on a true story also, but it's technically a novel or a novella. So when you were sitting down to, when you wanted to take on this story and begin the love affair with, with this book, is what was the dialogue you were having within yourself, thinking like, should I tell this as maybe a piece of narrative journalism, or should I, should I tell this more as a novella that's just based on some pretty concrete things I experienced? No, I knew I wanted to write it as a novel, mm -hmm. because... Because I knew I wanted to um, play with the story, you know. I knew I wanted to take liberties with the story, and and what what was interesting about it, there were a couple of elements in the construction of the of the book that I think were were at least fascinating to me. Um, having just read the book yourself, you'll know that there are two movements in the book. There's there's the history that takes place on the island, and then there's the the voyage to the island that I take with these three guys that, that you know, that aren't, in, that aren't experienced seamen, right? Mm -hmm. The latter of those two weren't part of my construction in, in my mind before I started writing the book. What I knew was that I needed to go back to the island in order to fill out the story in my mind. In other words, I had a general idea of what happened there, the tragedy took, that took place. But I thought, I knew I had to go there again so that I... I felt it viscerally and that I, I understood fully the story that I wanted to tell. What I didn't understand was that, the was that the trip to the island itself would become a part of the novel. And that speaks to another element in story writing, at least that exists for me. Um, whenever I write anything, I always look for the second story. I think even if you have a great story, it can tend to flatten out if you just stay on top of it. If you just stay on top of one story for page after page after page, no matter how good it is, it can tend to flatten out. You can, you, you know, you can tend, it's very hard to keep the energy of it alive. But if, you, if you're bouncing between two stories that kind of serpentine around one another, then you can develop a great synergy and something great can happen. And in this particular book, um, again, I, I didn't know what the second story was before I started writing the book. But once I took that trip to the island, the trip to the island was so filled with 
intrigue and ideas and danger that I knew that that juxtaposition would, would be what made the novel successful. Mm. And the story largely takes place, of course, on on an island. And it, it got me thinking about the choice that you made for the setting of of this story. And of course, since it's rooted in some some true elements, then in, in a sense that was kind of dictated to you. But of course, you might have you could have very well maybe just made this uh, in Fort Lauderdale or something, or, or on the on on one of the a coastal city on the mainland. So I was wondering, like, since it takes place on an island, like, how does place and setting for you inform the story you're telling and and become a character unto itself? It's very important. It's very important. You know, I think that um, I think that in in, in fiction, um, this is a, kind of like a an obvious paradox. Truth is hugely, hugely important in fiction. Now, in my in my last book, um, The Dream Merchant, the last third of the book takes place in the in, in the Amazon jungle, in um, in in a gold in a gold in a gold mining, um, you know, in in south of the city of Manaus, in in Brazil, um, there's a lot of illegal gold mining that's taken place over the last thirty years, and these gold mines in the jungle are extremely dangerous places because, you know, vast amount of money are being pulled out of them and there are bandits that try to take over. Each of these little gold mines have like a private army to defend them. And one army is trying to take over other armies. And the, and these and, and the, these mining situations are in the middle of the dense jungle and it's surrounded by jaguars and, and snakes. And I mean, there's a million ways to die in this part of the world. It's very, very dangerous part of the world. And I knew in order to write it successfully, I'd have to go there. I traveled there with my son, and we spent five weeks in the Amazon, um, just sm- smelling the place, listening to the jaguars at night, seeing it, uh, taking notes about it, and then, and then, and then I was able. To, I knew the story that I wanted to write, but I had to feel the place in my fingers, in my, in the smells and the food. I had to feel it in order to write it. And similarly, in this book, you know, that island was is essential. I mean, the, the story takes place on this little island that was once so gorgeous, and then utterly ruined, you know, decimated by hurricanes and violence. Um, so I had to see that as well. So place is very important. I think if you, you know, if, you, if you're an author and you're trying to write a, a novel about an, the Antarctic and you don't go there and smell, smell it and feel it, everyone's going to know you're, you're faking. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to know it's bullshit. No, it can't be any, it's very unlikely that it'll be any good. Have you run into uh, in, in the writers that you've worked with, or even colleagues and peers, that you know, maybe they want to write that, say, Antarctic novel, just to use the recent example, and uh, maybe they can't afford to get there? Um, you know, what advice might you have for that person who might have an ambitious world to build, but maybe they can't get there to tell it as true as possible? Write something else. Yep. I, I just think that you know. A good reader will tell you, can tell immediately that you're faking. I mean, and then you're beat before you even begin, unless unless the idea of faking is baked into the novel. You know that that can happen too, right? You could write a a novel about going to the Antarctic, and 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 the fraudulent nature of of it could be baked in in some strange way. But I I don't think I I think that I think that in fiction, faking is 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 very very apparent. You know. Um, one of the things that interests me, you know, I was reading, I was reading in the um, New York Times um, about a month ago an interview with Thomas Harris, um, who wrote *Silence of the Lambs*, and he was talking about character in his books, because right? he has a new novel that's been out, I guess, for a couple months now. I haven't read it, but and he made the point that he made the point that he never made, makes up anything. Every character that he ever wrote about including Hannibal Lecter, he knew. Now, of course, obviously, you know, he doesn't mean that he knew someone that ate other people, but mm-hmm. he obviously knew someone that that stirred him in a certain way that opened up the character of Hannibal Lecter. And a lot of great writers will, you know, some writers won't say that, but I think it's true about all the, all the great writers. I mean, Ernest Hemingway, for example, you know, in the first drafts of his books, in the first draft of, of The Sun Also Rises, um, he calls all of the characters the names of his friends. 
Uh, Jake Barnes is called Hem for Hemingway, and other characters are named friends of his, and then in later drafts he changes the names, and, and I'm sure that the characters evolve from the way they were in the first draft. But, I mean, novelists write about what they know about, the good ones. Yeah, and I think it's the old adage, like, write what you know. I think you have to get to a point that you know it, but it's probably a great place to start of writing what you don't know. That way you're always on, like, this sort of road of discovery, and then you can apply that. You can develop a sense of mastery to tell it true. But it's is that how you approach it? You see something that's kind of curious for you, and then you go down that road, and then you have the authority to write about it? Um. I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure how to how to answer that question. I, I, I just I just know that um, that I wouldn't dare write about a character. I mean, I might take on a character that I don't know and learn about him. Maybe that's a you like know, Lenny a, Bruce. Like Lenny Bruce, right? In, in, in the in the Dream Merchant, I I read. 12 books on Lenny Bruce. I felt like I was Lenny Bruce before I wrote those sections. And likewise, in that book, um, there's a character, um, it's a female character, her name is Ava. And Ava Ava is a 26-year-old woman. She's very, very beautiful, um, very sexy. Um, She's been used by men. Um, and And she has a sense that she's very smart, Kind of like Marilyn Monroe, but not so cultured, and 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 is kind of burdened by the sense that she that there are things in the world that she doesn't know about, and she wish she did. I knew this was the character that I wanted to write about, but I didn't understand her deeply. And so um, I was talking about this with my son Josh one day, and he said, "Let me introduce you to someone." So he introduced me to this friend of his. She was a 26-year-old girl. She was an actress. She looked like Marilyn Monroe. She was beautiful. Just beautiful. I took her out to lunch, and I described this character that I wanted to write. And we sat in this restaurant. We, t- we talked for, you know, an hour and a half. And she wasn't giving me anything. And I fig- figured this just wasn't going to work out. And I remember we were leaving the restaurant. This is a restaurant on 23rd Street called, um, called East of 8th Avenue. It's no longer there, but it's a great restaurant. And there's a Rhode Island, Rhode Island staircase outside that you have to walk up to leave the restaurant. And she was walking ahead of me and she turned around to me at the top of the stairs and she looked at me and her voice had changed and her character had changed. And she said, I can do this. Believe me, I can do this. And the hair on my arm stood up because like in those few seconds, she was my character, Ava. And so for the next nine months or so, um, she would come to my office every three weeks and, you know, I, I would have sent her a chapter that I'd etched out, you know, or an outline for a chapter. And she'd come to my office and we'd block it out together. And by the end of those nine months, I wasn't even giving her the lines. She was giving me the lines. She had become Ava. So there's a lot of different ways to discover a character. Mm. One of my favorite characters in uh, Deepwater Blues is actually Hannah, who kind of has a got kind of a minor role but she's kind of a kind of a the a, a the old soul of the book in a lot of ways like she's just there she's kind of um she's kind of trapped uh and kind of suffocated by and, and pulled into Bobby's orbit especially when he grows obsessed with his uh his rivalry and his rival and uh I was wondering like how did you how did you come to Hannah and uh and want to uh tell her story as part of being on Bobby's wing? Um, you know, I'm really glad you mentioned Hannah because, um, you know, I'm kind of smiling if you, if you could see me on, on Skype right now because Hannah uh, was truly an invention. You know, she, she, I mean, I can't think of another character that I've written recently that was so much a pure, an, an invent, you know, a, an invention of my imagination as purely as Hannah. I mean, you know, I have a dear friend that's Hannah, and I used her name, um, but she's not at all like my friend Hannah. But I just imagined her, you know. I, I, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I, I, I don't think, I don't think she was based on anyone in particular. There was a kind of, 
I think it was, I think it had to do with the juxtaposition to Bobby more than anything else. I wanted, I wanted Bobby to develop from um, the character he'd been to the character that he is at the end of the book. And, and I needed, I needed, I needed for him to have a guide and Hannah was his guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And without her, his, his, his pursuit and his his obsession might feel kind of like noble and and just very you know type A and driven, but with her it it, it gives ballast and makes him almost look uh, like a, like a man possessed and like a man who is being driven to a bad place by his obsessions. And without her, I don't know if you get that. You you don't necessarily get how almost mad Bobby is driven. Uh, towards towards the towards the you know in the final quarter of the book or so. I think that's true. I think that's definitely true. But she also opens doors for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bobby. Bobby is um. You know, there is a real Bobby, and Bobby's an extremely charismatic and interesting guy. Apart from the book, you know, he's. I think. I think he's. I think I draw him very much as he is. But he's he's a fascinating guy. But if you were sitting and talking to him, if you were interviewing Bobby. I think he would tell you flat out, I'm a pirate. And, and what he means by that is that he has a dark side. And I think Hannah opened doors for him. I think she showed him a way to live a different life and to, and to aspire to values beyond anything he'd ever conceived of before he knew her. Mm. And where do you feel, and you can tie it into uh, this book or any of the books you've written, um, where do you feel most alive and most engaged in the entire process of bringing a book from idea to, to its final, um, its final ideal, if you will. Um, the writing, you know, it's, it's something, it's something again that I talked to about with my young writer friends. I mean, I said, cause you know, like I remember when I was, um, again, when I was in my mother's cold water studio and I was in my twenties and I was writing my dream stories and getting rejected left and right. Um, you know, I, it's, occasionally I would talk to a, a successful writer and, and I would talk about my um, fears about publishing and, um, and, and, and my young writer friends do the same with me now. And I, what I say to them invariably is like, when I think about um, the high points of my career, it, and I've been lucky, you know, I've had you know, I've had some I've had some success in my writing and I've gotten, you know, some great reviews from very, very smart people and all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, I've been a lucky writer, but the joy of it is writing the paragraphs. No doubt about it. Sitting down and writing those paragraphs, having things come out of me that I never dreamed were inside me. You know, working on the sentences until they really sing, the pleasure that that, that comes from that for me, creating characters that I hadn't quite thought of before, like Hannah. You know, I'd never thought of a Hannah before I started writing her. Um, that's where the greatness that, that's where the greatness of it is for me. No question about it. Yeah, there's a there's a great quote from um, uh, this guy named Chase Jarvis, a you know photographer and he's founder of Creative Live, the online learning site. And he has this line that just says like, "Make it until you make it, instead of fake it until you make it." And that just you saying like you would have never have created Hannah had you had not just been in the grind and just churning through, putting in the hours, putting your ass in the chair, getting the work done. And then sun, suddenly, you know, a great turn of phrase happens or a great character surfaces. And over the course of your career, how have you gotten comfortable writing a lot of maybe bad words and bad paragraphs to get to that one that really cracks and not being hung up by right, doing bad work to get to good work? Um, you know, th this is, might not seem seem like um, a brilliant answer, but I think there really is something in, into this. I, re I really think there's something to this idea of the ten thousand hours. You know, the, this idea of if you work at something for ten thousand hours, who was who was the nonfiction writer that posited that? Glad I can't. Gladwell. Glad, yeah, Gladwell. I think there's really truth in that. I mean, like, like I have a friend. Um, He's, uh, he's, he's 24 years old. He's a brilliant guy. He went to, um, just finished a graduate degree at Oxford and he wants to write fiction. 
And he started showing me his fiction two years ago. And I mean, he was a great nonfiction writer. I mean, the reviews that he was writing at 20, 21 and 22, they just knock your socks off. They were as good as I, better than I could do. They were just great. But his fiction was, he just didn't have a sense for what to do. He was lost. He was all over the place. And, and we talked about it. And, you know, I, I would make a suggestion here or there. But basically, I would just tell him to keep working at it. And he worked at it and worked at it. And, you know, he showed me two short stories um, this last week. And they blew my socks off. I mean, they were, they were both great. I mean, they were, they were just terrific. They were just filled with mystery and, and intrigue. And the prose was beautiful. And, and he didn't say too much. And he didn't say so, too little. And I thought back, oh, my God, the way he's developed in two years but he spent a lot of time during those two years writing writing paragraphs. And I think that there's just, you just can't escape that. I mean, you could have the greatest writer, writing teacher in the world, um, and you have to put those hours in. And for some of us, I wasn't good at having teachers. I mean, you know, I, I was a blockhead in that sense. Like, when, when you know, when, when people made suggestions to me about my writing, I tended to be very defensive. So, which is, which probably hurt me in retrospect. But... But what didn't hurt me was spending a lot of time writing paragraphs and getting better at it. Yeah, and how important is it for you to uh, to mentor and, and coach younger writers? I don't know how important it is. It, I, it what I mean by that is like I, I don't formally teach creative writing courses. I might, and I might have, but I you know I, I've chosen not to do that. Um, but sometimes, from time to time, a writer comes to me and asks me for some suggestions and I end up working with him for a while. You know, I'm working with a friend of my, of my son's who's, um, who's not a young writer. He's in his forties and he's writing a first novel and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I'm so inspired by his development. And so, you know, you know what it's, it's a little bit like being a father, I suppose, you know, I mean, sometimes I think I might've been a creative writing teacher and loved it. I, it just isn't my path, but, um, it's very exciting when I do it. And earlier you mentioned that when you were coming up and kind of just, you know, kind of struggling, getting your toehold, and you had some conversations with who you deemed as successful writers um, when you were coming up. Um, who were those people, and what kind of questions were you asking of them to develop yourself better? You know, I, I don't have a satisfying answer for this because, like, I, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell a story without, without naming a name because – uh, I just wouldn't want to do that. One of my favorite short story writers, um, and you know, and I, I think I think he's, he's he would be recognized as as one of the the greater short story writers of the of the twentieth century. Um, I admired him so, and and I wrote to him, and we um, and one night we, we had dinner together at an Italian restaurant in the village, and we talked for two and a half hours, and we talked about writing, and I was so excited to meet him and discuss writing with him because. Um, because I admired his story writing so much. But when we talked about writing, he seemed completely flat to me. You know, I, 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 you know, we talked for two and a half hours and I didn't find anything that was helpful to me, but maybe this is me, you know? I mean, again, as I say, you know, like I think some people are sponges for, for learning in that way and other people have to do with themselves. You know, in my writing career, I've always kind of played this game with myself I mean, I live in New York. I mean, there's a gazillion writers in New York, famous writers, um, writers that haven't been so successful. And I've always sort of like adopted the illusion that I'm the only one here writing, writing articles and writing essays and writing books. It's very comforting for me to, that, to be that way. I never went to um, places like Yaddo and McDowell, although I've been invited to go to them. I never went to writers' workshops and conferences. I've always sort of lo loved the idea of being kind of a hermit out there on my own feeling like I kind of invented it for myself and I'm the only one out there doing it. That illusion always worked for me. I don't think that's the way to go. I don't think people should be that way. That's just the way I have been. Mm. Yeah, and, and how did you foster a sense of community even though you were telling yourself the story that you were on your own island, so to speak? Uh, that way, you know, you were contributing to something larger, but you were still playing a mind game with yourself that allowed you to get the work done. Well, you know, after, you know, after my years, you know, starting from my years in journalism, I've been lucky. 
um, you know, I was able to publish my work in, in very good places. And, uh, and I, you know, and I had, an, and I built an audience and I've had, a, and you know, and I, I don't, I don't mean, maybe I'm, maybe I've kind of misrepresented myself a little bit. I have a few friends that have been wonderful writers and I've, I've loved them. And, and we've talked about writing and we've been helpful to one another. Mainly what I'm saying is that I sort of didn't, I didn't enter the large pool of writer, of, of writers and writer, writing work, workshops and, and writing retreats that a lot of writers do. But, I, you know, I, I've had friends that are artists and writers, and, you know, I've been part of the, the community, at least on the edges of it. Um, but I, I've mostly kept my own company in that, in that respect. Mm. And what would you say you struggle with to, to this day? You, you know, you've written millions of words, but I'm sure there's probably some things that you, uh, that you still struggle with that you have to work through every time you start a new book. So what are, some, what are one or two of those things that, um, that you still kind of have to get over when you're writing a book? Well, you know, two things that I can think of, I mean, off the top. The first thing is the new book itself. Because like, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, every time I finish a book, like if I started to, if I, if I like had an idea for a book, right? And I do have a couple of ideas that are kind of floating around. But if I started writing one tomorrow, I think what I would start doing is, as strange as this might sound, is writing paragraphs very similar to the paragraphs that I wrote um, in Deep Water Blues, because because that book is still running through my mind. You know, I, I I get so deeply involved with the book that I I'm working on. It's such it's so it's such a big part of me. It takes me a while to shed it. You know, I've I've always looked with confusion and envy at other writers that that move from one book to the next. I mean, writers that publish a book every year or every two years, and they know exactly what they're going to do next, and they slide right into the next book. I'm not like that. I need, I need a hiatus between books because, like, I always want my books to be different. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to write the same book over and over again. And I think my books have been different. The other part of it is that at the beginning of each book, it's an enormous challenge because, you know, you start writing it, and it's like building a house. You know, you, you start with the foundation, and you put one brick down, and then another brick down. And you look at it, and you say, listen, am I going to be able to pull this off? I mean, am I going to really be able to, pull, to build this whole, this whole house? Is this going to work? Is it going to fall apart? You know, you, you, you trouble about that. I mean, I think, I don't know if all writers do, but I do. I mean, and then, it, and then, you, certain, and then you catch a rhythm, and you just go with it, you know? And, and it's, you know, it's like flying. It's exciting. But, you know, you, you worry, can I pull this off, at least at the beginning of every book? It doesn't matter that you've written six books before. You still have to, you're still starting at the beginning and wondering if it's going to work. Do you have a, a morgue of stories that you start or books you started and you're just like, ah, I, the, the foundation of this is too rickety. I, I don't think I can pull this off. Early, early stories. Not not so much in the last twenty five or thirty years. Mm -hmm. Pretty pretty much everything I've I've tried to write in the last twenty five or thirty years, I've managed to write and finish. As I met, as I mentioned much earlier, I mean this book, I worried about because like I knew it was a great story, but I didn't know how to write it, and I had to put it aside for two and a half years. But then ultimately, I began, I, I was able to write it. Um, but no, the answer the answer is is basically no. I you know, I, I, once I seize on an idea, I, I've pretty much been able to, to write it to the end. And in, through the course of your, your writing, you've been doing this for, for, for a long time. Uh, what's, what still excites you and still um, surprises you when you're in the throes of a creative project? The, you know, just the, that stuff that gives you that grist for the mill, like it's stuff that just keeps bringing you back to the page time and time again, probably for the rest of your life. What I said to you earlier. You know, um, the discovery, I mean, a, a discovery is just, is just, um, a thrilling thing. You know, it's like meeting a new friend, right? Like when, you know, like, like you, you have your, your circle of friends, what six friends and you love them. Right. And it, and it, and it seems like as you get older, it seems harder and harder to really make a new intimate friendship. I don't know if you would agree with that, but mm -hmm. that, that's my sense. And then you meet someone new. 
and you relate to him or her so powerfully and it's just so alive. And it's like you're rediscovering yourself through this new person that you meet, right? And and that's the, that's the exciting thing when you start a new book. It's like it's it's like having a new love. It's kind of like what you what you once said, where there are many ways to experience the girl in the elevator. <laughs> you've really you've really looked into my writing. That's exactly correct. That's right. There are many ways to experience that girl in the elevator. <laughs> and it could may, may and for people that might sound weird to people who don't exactly know what that means, but. I, there's a great story behind that. I, maybe you could elaborate on that, what kind of what that metaphor means. Okay. So I have this friend and you know, he's, he's, he was in his, at the time he was in his sixties, I think middle sixties. And he was feeling depressed about life. He was feeling a bit stale about his, his work, a brilliant guy. Um, he was, uh, he was a great athlete. He was a triathlete, um, a golfer, and a baseball player. But he, physically, he couldn't do any more the kinds of things that he was doing. And he was feeling gloomy about his life. And he was living in an Upper West Side apartment. And one day, um, he was riding in the elevator. And there was a woman in the elevator who was 15 or 20 years younger than him. And... Um, and he'd noticed her before, and she noticed him before. And they started chatting a little bit. They had to go up to the 14th floor or something like that. And she said to him, um, out of the blue, in one of those moments in life, uncanny moments in life, you know, you're so attractive to me. And he was dumbstruck by this. And she embraced him, and they kissed in the elevator. And... Uh, and that was it. And it was an intoxicating moment for him. And he felt reinvigorated. And his life, um, it was just a shot in the arm for him. And his work became more creative. And his marriage became more creative. And he just felt good about the world. That's the story, right? That's it. Yeah. I, I love it. It's, 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 I, I just love that there's those different ways to experience the, the girl in the elevator to to jumpstart your creativity or, or, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, but there are any number of ways to, to find that and to kind of kick you in the pants and to, you know, revitalize yourself. Yeah, there are, there's a lot of ways to, to find the girl in the elevator. I mean, for me, uh, as I, as I met, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, fishing is the thing. I mean, you know, you, you sit, you sit in the office and you know, the office is great. The city is great. But you go out on the, on the Gulf Stream and, you, and you, you, know, you troll a couple of lures and some 400-pound fish grabs the lure and leaps out of the water and you look at him and you think, oh, my God, how could there be something in the world as beautiful as that? That's another girl in the elevator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, Fred, I want to be mindful of your time. This was, this was so wonderful to get to talk to you about writing and your process and, and of course, your wonderful new novella. So um, you know, where, can, uh, where can people get more familiar with you and your work if they're not already familiar with it? Well, you know, you can, you can read about um, my different books on my website, fredwaitskin.com. There are also essays about writing um, and interviews with me there. And, uh, and uh, to buy the new book, um, Deepwater Blues, I would say Amazon.com. They, they offer it at a good, at a good discount, and, um, and they've been very good, um, very good to me at Amazon. Amazon.com is a good place to buy my work. Well, fantastic. Well, I hope this is the first of many conversations because I think we could uh, go down a lot of different rabbit holes, especially with respect to writing and writing memoir, even uh, long-form journalism, too. So I hope, uh, I, I hope we can keep this conversation going uh, in the future, Fred. I'd love to. I really enjoyed this talk. This was a great talk, Brendan. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you, and, uh, and stay cool Take and take care. Take care. Bye. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? I love talking to people who love the work above all else. That's how we get satisfaction in this racket. It's by loving words, loving paragraphs. The rest is gravy. It's got to be. I know we have to somehow make a living, but finding the satisfaction in the things we can control will yield more happiness and money. Need money. Thanks to Goucher's MFA in Nonfiction and Bay Path University's MFA in Creative Nonfiction for the support. Remember... Keep the conversation going on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, email. Share the show. 
This only grows if it matters to you. If you're feeling kind, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it. That's what we do here. Got any questions, concerns, you know where to find me. Ping me on social. You can email the show or email me. It's all going to the same place. And you know what? That is going to do it. That is it, everybody. Like I always say, if you can do interviews, see ya.